Welcome to the Serious Leisure podcast. My name is Petia Petrova. I'm the host of this podcast. You are listening to part two of three episodes we recorded with Professor Robert Stebbins. I'm, of course, joined by Sam Elkington and Kat Branch. And we talked to, to Bob about the importance of persevering with leisure and why serious leisure is not always easy or even not always enjoyable, but why it is that we stick with it. Enjoy. For those of you who have listened to us before, you would have an idea that um, Sam, Kat and I are just competing as to who is going to ask the next question, because there was so much um, that Bob talked about. Um, he talked about a little bit about research methodology and the qualitative quantitative um, coexistence, or maybe debate. Um, he also gave insights to those of you who, who are listening who are not from academia about how seriously haha, we take researching um, our lives, and in this case, leisure, um, and, and what it, what's involved in that, kind of the depths and consideration um, around that. And just for context about what's happening next in our discussion, um, I come to this as a lay person in relation to the serious leisure perspective. This is not a field of research of, of, of my own, um, but I come from a perspective that um, academic literature often gives us um, a toolkit through which we can reflect on our experiences. And this is in effect what we have been doing with this podcast, talking about individuals' experiences, and trying to have a conversation and a reflection of what, what that means to us um, through the lens of the serious leisure perspective and the concepts and ideas uh, situated within that. Kat comes to this conversation as a person who has used the serious leisure perspective and the literature and evidence base to talk about why this is valuable and to continue to look for support for the Center for Music, and she'll tell us a little bit more uh, about that, I have no doubt, later on. Sam came to this as a researcher in this field, but also as through the perspective of all of us three collectively about the value and importance of leisure in our lives um, and trying to rethink and rebalance how we currently structure our lives and how society works. Um, for our conversation. So I'm just give, giving the summary about where we are all going to come in with our questions that the three of us have, have a different take on, on this discussion. Mm -hmm. I'm going to um, pass on to Sam to tell us where are we heading next and which bit of what Bob just talked about, the five, five decades of serious leisure we're going to unpack next. Thanks, Petia. Yeah, where where to begin? I think is the uh, is the question. We haven't got we haven't got much to cover, have we? Um, no, but I mean I I've been very privileged uh, to to have known Bob for so long. Um, and just just for transparency, I guess uh, Bob was very kind to accept my invitation to be my external supervisor for my own PhD uh, back in two thousand five. Still remember the conversation now. 
Um, so, and it's safe to say that uh, that that decision and what followed has very much shaped my own career and my own kind of perspective, I guess, on how I approach um, not just you know the academic side of of life, but also the broader the broader side of life. And um, th- th- there's a bit of a there's a bit of a joke in in leisure studies. I it's those uh, th- those folks studying leisure are so busy studying leisure they have no leisure of their own. Um, which you, you know we, we hear the world over at conferences and all sorts. But uh, but the one thing I think about the serious leisure perspective that I, I want to highlight and then explore perhaps in a little bit more detail is the fact that it is grounded in the experiences of people. And I think that the testament to that, or, or the, the the proof in the pudding, so to speak, is it is one of the few uh, theoretic frameworks still around uh, from 30, 40 years ago. Um, you know, there's work by Stan Parker, who's no longer with us, and uh, and many others who, who were writing about leisure in the and, and Ken Roberts, who uh, has written books and articles on leisure uh, studies and different aspects of leisure. Um, but the serious, serious leisure framework is still with us and it's still expanding. It's still very much relevant. It's relevant because it's still being researched. It's still generating that curiosity. And I, I wonder, Bob, if you could talk to us a little bit about um, serious leisure, the, the, the perspective as a lens for making sense of the work leisure relationship because this is something everything what what i love about the introduction to the perspective that you've just given is our, our listeners who listen back from this uh from this podcast you'll hear so much of that in what's been talked about whether it be agency taste play expression identity lifestyle occupational devotion we're talking to academics for crying out loud you know the there's so much of that but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see the perspective helping us negotiate the, you know, the the, the traditional dichotomy between work and leisure in broader life, broader the, the broader lifestyles of people. I find the perspective really useful uh, for that kind of question. <clears throat> when um, I wrote a book in 2004 called Between Work and Leisure, the publisher Irving Lewis Horowitz. Um, said, hey, look, there's a lot of work. This is like the leisure you're talking about. And um, I had seen this, but already biased by my new fields that were of interest. Um, No, 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 that doesn't work. But Horowitz kept after me. And um, so in that book, uh, I introduced occupational devotion or devotee work <clears throat> and s- spell it out and we don't have time in this podcast to get into all of that and there was that book and then there's another one coming out as I mentioned that links these two and effaces the um, boundaries between work and leisure so <clears throat> And it goes way back to um, T.H. Marshall, a British sociologist in the 50s and 60s, um, who observed that there are people, and he was talking about professionals, who um, 
the work uh, so that they may be um, they play at their work, i.e. get paid, so that they may do their work. Most of us work to get paid, so we can do something else, like pay the mortgage or whatever. Um, <clears throat> and that's an insightful uh, observation about professional work. And what I've done is expand that because there's consulting, and that's professional, I guess, but there are people that are doing small crafts that are also getting paid so that they may continue to do that. Otherwise, they'd have to work at something else and there'd be no time for the craft. Um, and um, some small businesses uh, are like that. And um, so that book on occupational devotion explores the full range of kinds of work that uh, uh, are um, uh, available in our society. Stan didn't see that, Stan Parker. He was busy trying to separate, uh, as were others, work from leisure. And, um, uh, and that's not the case. Uh, indeed, there's leisure and work, but that's not related to work. So telling jokes, for example, asking a colleague about how are the kids? Um, um, they've got COVID, oh, well, what do you do? And that sort of thing. There's there's lots of non-work kinds of things happening uh, at work. And then there's things happening when you're supposedly not at work because the work's so exciting, you bring it home. Well, could I, could I ask, I'm so I'm interested in this area because, um, looking after a music service in a, in a way for me as a musician and my background is also in using music and the arts to help people with their with their well-being kind of different social projects my background is using music and drama with vulnerable groups of people people who might be in prison or in recovery or struggling with homelessness that kind of thing that's kind of my roots and so and I absolutely love it and I started as a volunteer in that area of work and um and so I, I'm lucky to have a job that I really love. Um, and also music for me uh, has at different times represented, you know, this kind of serious leisure in a way, I suppose. Um, spent a lot of time developing my musical skills. And also I do get paid for those as well. But if I'm being honest, at some level, I think, depending on what I'm doing, it does depend on how I engage with the activity or how I feel about it. I wondered when you were exploring that book, did you still find a, a, a sort of difference in terms of how people were able to enjoy themselves or or relax depending on where they were I, I suppose I feel like when I when I'm doing some of the things that I really love and care about at work like a music intervention I get a lot of satisfaction from that but because I know that I have to do it well <laughs> because someone's going to be measuring and testing me it's not mm -hmm. quite the same as when I'm you know at home knocking around with the real book and just having a bit of a jam and you know maybe writing some stuff I don't know. Could, could you explain a bit more? Because I, I just imagine there might be some nuance there. Or, or what did you discover? Part of the SLP, Serious Leisure Perspective, uh, includes a discussion, especially for the serious part of it, 
of rewards and costs. And that formula got into the picture very early. In fact, I think in the book on amateurs, published in 1979, there was already a discussion of this kind of stuff. In other words, um, serious leisure is not an unalloyed joy. Um, there are times, you know, I can't get this part right. right. You know, I hate it. Um, no more of Beethoven or whomever. Um, <clears throat> I'm a musician too, so. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, Chopin, he can do one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are frustrations, but there's an overall view that this stuff's a pain in the neck. But in the end, I really love what I'm doing because if I do manage to get the part right, what a sense of achievement. And then I can play with a group where the part fits and what a joy that is. That's interesting. And then I wonder, could, could I bring you back? You know, you talked about people doing their sort of small crafts and then starting to get paid for that. Mm -hmm. This this reminds me of some of my early kind of music gigs, like back when I was in my 20s. And like honestly, a sense of disbelief at getting, played, at getting paid to do that. <laughs> I don't know if it's the same for those people. And then somewhere along the line, the amount of musicking I was then doing was taking up most of my time, which was great. It was good income. <clears throat> But it wasn't, it wasn't, um, you know, a sometimes thing. And if I'm being honest, some of the joy came out of it at that point, you know. Um, and and that's that satisfaction of like, wow, I'm getting paid to do this thing that I love became more like I'm just really exhausted by doing this all the time. I, did did you see any patterns like that, or was maybe I'm just weak minded? <laughs> no, you you get it in sport particularly, um, where they have to play football much more than they want to play football because the owners want to make money and they don't make money if you don't play. But um, after four or five months of this stuff, they'd like a break, uh, the players. Um, not the audience necessarily, uh, the fans and stands. So that's one of those problems. You get an overdose and um, football players, and they don't play nearly as much as the Canadian football players, don't play nearly as much as um, <clears throat> the major professional leagues, mostly because we got a winter around here, and that soon takes the fun out of anything other than skiing. So the interest goes down. Now, off-season comes, uh, the um, lads stay in shape and um, then they're keen to get back again. So there's this sort of sine wave of this is great stuff and then oh my goodness the season's wearing on uh, my bones are old and tired uh, and so you get that and some quit for that reason. You know the the bloom is off the rose. I don't want to do this anymore. And um, <clears throat> at that point, they may be hooked on the money. So uh, they stay because when I do quit, I'll have a million dollars or whatever, and uh, that will be great. So that's a problem. And bureaucracies can enter. Um, physicians, uh, many of them have quit 
because of the difficulty of all the paperwork that goes with um, state medicine. And um, now in America, they got a lot of paperwork when they get paid well. So, okay, we'll, we'll put up with this. But in Canada, they don't get paid so well, but they still got paperwork. And um, government's intervening and saying what you ought to do and shouldn't do, which may in a sense be against medical advice. So in all of these um, devotee work uh, fields, there are negative things, costs. You know, even in crafts, you're selling stuff that you'd rather not have to make because half of your clientele are Philistine. And, um, and I'm tired of making this um, stupid pot, but it sounds like hot cake. So, <laughs> <laughs> better know yeah. it so we can pay the damn rent. I think, you know, I think that is, in a way, though, I think that is an encouraging message for people listening to the podcast, because for people thinking, well, my life is such a sellout, I'm, my, my job's nothing close to what I love doing, and I only do my hobby from time to time. Well, I think on the plus side, what we can see there is that actually that keeps a certain sanctity to the leisure space, possibly. I, I know you've actually talked about some very interesting overlap there between work and leisure, but I think for any of us who who may find um, that we can't put as much time into our leisure as we would wish, that that doesn't somehow therefore make that time valueless or in a way actually protects the novelty of what we're doing and means that we can keep taking benefit over the long term. We don't burn out like those poor footballers who've had enough by the end, you know. Petra, okay. did you want to come in there? Yes, um, thanks, Kat. I'm coming in from a different perspective here. So um, for those of us who've stayed with us from season one and our very, very first um, podcast episodes, you know that I talked about um, improv theatre and taking improv lessons and being in that beginning of having a kind of casual leisure that gradually became more and more serious. Um, and within that, I've had a few wobbles as I became a little bit more experienced. And then we started having performances. Um, and then you realize actually how inexperienced you are and how difficult it is. Um, and actually committing to having a rehearsal every week and some weeks you don't feel like it, etc. So it's been a real ups and downs with, with that. So I was coming coming to this this. Uh, from not so much the kind of work leisure thing, but actually moving, moving along and becoming more and more serious through that. The one thing that did keep me going was the my improv group, and I just love spending time with with the, that group of people, and that's been the kind of constant positivity. But my relationship with how comfortable I feel doing improv, how good I think I am or not has really wobbled over as I became more serious about it. So, Bob, I was wondering what you can comment on on, on that, please. Well, it's um, interesting that you should be doing improv. I ran on to it and studying the stand-up comics. Um, and in Calgary, there was a, a lively improv group uh, generated by one of the professors of theater uh, in, in University of Calgary. And a couple of the stand-up comics indeed were 
improv people themselves. Um, though usually when they got a job uh, in a comedy club, they did their usual scripted um, shtick uh, with with the, with the um, with the audience. <coughs> but on off days, then they'd be doing improv, and um, they loved it, of course, and. Um, they saw it as um, uh, developing them as um, artists um, with the word that uh, you could learn how to be uh, <clears throat> good with language and you weren't stuck on your script. So they would have an idea when they go on stage in a comedy club, but it wouldn't be like they memorized everything they know what they would have to do to get a laugh. Um, or if they didn't get a laugh, then what the cause of that was. Um, but the really good ones, um, the cause wasn't that they improvised. Uh, it was just that uh, the audience was dead that night or something of that sort. So, uh, or does someone have to go? Um, and come to be on a, uh, a booking agent would book them on a series of clubs uh, to go to. Well, it's one thing to go to an urban club, um, Calgary's a million and a half people, then to go out to the sticks, <coughs> say in Ranger, Alberta, a thousand, I'm sorry, 100,000 people, uh, but in the midst of a very conservative and rural area. And there's stuff that doesn't work there. And um, uh, some people, uh, back when I was studying the gang, there was a, a guy from Britain, Simon Fanshaw. And Simon's gay. He shows up on stage in a pink suit. Um, goes over very well uh, in Toronto, for example. Comes to Red Deer, he's lucky to be alive. Um, you know, so it's, um, <clears throat> and he had a very good act. It was incredible. Um, I don't think I've laughed at anything as much. Sam? Yeah, I, there's so much in this, and I've got about 14 pages of notes, so bear with me two seconds. <laughs> um, no, I'm just, what I'm trying to do is, is trying to knit it together in my head with what we've heard on previous podcasts as well in terms of, you know, obviously this is the context for the conversation we've been having. But just in what Petty, I mean, obviously Petty shared her story and Bobby you've brought that kind of comparative piece there as well. But just to draw out for folk, you know, in terms of some of the key features here and what we're, what we're seeing and what we're hearing, you know, in all serious leisure, there are those times when we have to persevere. Yes, so Bob's just been given an example of that. Yeah, you know, we have to persevere. It's not all positive, and I think that's that's part and parcel of this, you know, particularly if it's a long-term commitment to said core activity, whether it be improvisation or playing a particular sport or playing music or, re you know, whatever it might be. There's an element sometimes when we just have to persevere, but also going hand-in-hand hand with that is this personal commitment to that task. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's one of the reasons why we persevere and the significant effort that that entails. And yeah. I think we've seen and heard so much of that, the dynamic between those features 
And what brings people back is one of the very first things that Bob was talking about. You know, Bob used the word taste, but it's also interest. It's, you know, a certain way of, you know, mm-hmm. looking and wanting to, 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 to act. So that taste, that interest, that, that hook, we've talked about the hook before in previous podcasts, is really fundamental to that as well. And so just in the way that you're talking there, Bob, about the, 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 the dynamic nature of the experience of serious leisure, it's not always wholly positive, is it? There's, there's always, there's always, and I, I think that sometimes um, the, the challenge for folk when we talk about leisure academically, no. you know, yeah. you know, it's not always a positive, positive experience. What makes this serious is we keep coming back. That was one of the reasons why I wrote the book Leisure's Legacy, was to explore common sense and hence casual leisure, um, and how that influences how we see uh, all leisure, all free time activity. Um, and then we keep, you know, oh, it's free time, so it should be easy. And of course, serious leisure is not. Um, it doesn't just roll over and play dead as it were, and you master it. Um, and yet the challenge being there uh, is important too. And so people break legs and uh, whether in theater or on ski hills, um, they, um, they have their moments when if they don't persevere, they won't get anywhere, but they do learn that um, uh, you must keep at it. If you keep at it, you will get it. Now, presumably one reaches a certain plateau and you simply can't advance because it's beyond your ability. And some people can't accept that. But um, there was a book came out, um, I forget the name of the author, but she had interviewed jazz musicians, and many of them were big names. And one of the major themes running through that book was, if only I could play better. You know, Miles Davis saying this, how can you play any better than Miles Davis? But they all felt that there were still hurdles to get over, um, and they just needed more time to do it. Now, whether that would have happened or not, I don't know, but I suspect that a lot of people in the arts um, and sciences too um, have to get out of their leisure activity, serious leisure activity, devotee, work activity, um, because of old age or what have you, never having got to that level of perfection from which they uh, had been striving. So <clears throat> these are aspects, I think, of serious leisure uh, that have not been well um, examined. And uh, you know, one to need a grant to be able to talk to these people and fly to where they are uh, to uh, discuss the matter, which people would be happy to talk about. Sam? Yeah, and, and I, it's funny you should say that when you, you when you say there the, these aspects of the serious leisure perspective have not been 
you know, examined in real depth because actually in the stories that we've been hearing through the podcast, they're, they're coming through loud and clear, you mm-hmm. know, particularly as, you know, as um, mechanisms for, or yeah, mechanisms for negotiating our work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, how people craft, you know, even half an hour for that one activity after they've completed their work obligations. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. so many of the people we've spoken to have worked or crafted their work around their leisure. Yeah. And in yeah. fact, yeah. you know, their work is quite quite literally getting in the way, but it actually pays okay. the bills. I'm thinking of Sharon Gator and and you know the the ultra running and uh, and others. And and as you've said, in terms of the devotee um occupational um concept for a lot of the people we've spoken to it's just indistinguishable yeah you know for the love of doing it you know it's quite literally that's what it is mm-hmm. i think I, I think it was uh chiksimahai coined the term autotelicism wasn't it so the autotelic means self-goal so yeah. the, the, the activity itself the doing of it is quite literally all people need you know it's that's what draws them in and cat yeah. you've spoken about that um, about when you're playing and, and, and teaching music. So I catch you want to come in there. Yeah, I was just going to say, I've been doing some analysis of some um, interviews that I've been doing with uh, students who come and use Centre for Music. And today, this was the main theme I was looking at, actually, because it, what, it was just really interesting that this intrinsic enjoyment of music in this case and and students, Bob, just to be clear, who come to Centre for Music, they're not studying music for their degrees. That's what makes the project a bit interesting. So you know, there's architecture students, engineering students, nursing students, and they come to the centre to do whatever they want and we just help them. But what is so interesting that I was looking about today was watching these young people try to find the language, you know, to say, well, it's just, you know, it's just music, man. I just, I have to do it. Oh, I just, that's just my passion. And I just, I must express it. Or, oh, there's just some kind of voodoo when I'm there and I'm playing with my friend, you know, it's just so interesting seeing people stumbling around trying to lay their hands on something that's really hard to actually describe isn't it when you get this sort of special quality in whatever it is obviously music for these guys and for me too on a good day um but i'm i'm guessing you must encounter this in all kinds of different activities this sort of like oh it's just something about what that is what that does for me that's enough the autotelic um experience is what i'm going for well all of this reverberates around in the social world so that um you feel good about your music but you know others feel good about your music too. Um, <clears throat> and so that reverberation of approval, and it may not be that people come right out and say as much, but um, in jazz circles, somebody's snapping their finger. You know, this is good stuff. But in the snapping of the fingers and the body gestures are enough uh, to let the performers know then everybody's doing well um, before an audience of um, sophisticates uh, in the area. <clears throat> and social world is, I know these people and I know what they can do and um, how critical they can be. <clears throat> so, um, and of course, this is all taking place in some setting, a jam session or um, what have you, 
that uh, had to be arranged. So, so we don't want to forget that. And I might add at this point, uh, a sort of commercial social world is a way of getting larger scale uh, meso level social structure into the picture. Um, so we're overloaded with uh, um, social psychological um, concepts. That's good, but it isn't the whole story. So <clears throat> I'm more and more trying to um, contextualize leisure as micro, meso, and macro. It doesn't fit uh, the usual conception of macro, but um, it's a uh, an important way of showing that leisure is part of larger life, uh, part of the culture, part of the social structure. And um, we can talk about leisure experience, which by the way, is the experience of the activity itself. You wanna know what leisure is? Ask a downhill skier, he or she will tell you, this is what it is, man, we go downhill, <clears throat> breakneck speed and round corners and if you're lucky, avoid hitting a tree. Um, <clears throat> so that's critical too, those uh, larger level uh, discussions. Anyway, I'll get back to Sam. Well, do you know, thanks, Sam. I was just going to say as well, it's, it's just so interesting, Bob, hearing you emphasize the social elements, because um, I certainly see that um, at, at Centre of Music as well. Um, what's interesting, though, is um, uh, in my little island, often uh, people doing their leisure with us are not really aware of that dynamic until you get into a conversation. Somehow the conversation reveals the importance of these social structures and dynamics and, you know, that approval you were talking about, somehow often quite unconscious for participants in some way, that part of a community, although then discussion reveals it like um, on so many episodes we've had some of that Sam have talked about, you know, where the process of the conversation, actually, then people start to realise that actually there is this whole like community that they're joining. I wonder, um, I think, um, I wonder just if you could comment, did you find when you're talking, when you're doing your own research, did participants intentionally go for that social element? Or was it more like what I've seen where People are kind of, they experience that and actually becomes a very important agent, but kind of like as a side effect, you know? The social world is an experience too. Um, <clears throat> because it's full of gossip amongst other things. It's full of knowledge in the music world. You know, who's a good repair person? Um, you you got to find that out. Um, how do you get hold of music? got to find that out. That's part of the social world. And um, uh, the way we've got it broken down is there are special functionaries that actually um, apply, uh, um, <clears throat> actually apply skills for repair, actually apply um, mediums for uh, getting music, when I was learning uh, in my early days in jazz in Minneapolis, um, 
we didn't have all these fancy um, uh, real books as they're now called today, uh, which is just a melody line and chord changes. Um, and they've hauled into these books several volumes going back into the 1920s and even earlier. Well, in 1950, 1958, 59, I wanted to have one of these things, but there weren't real books then. They were loose leaf sheets and they were called, put together, the black book. And you got it and I drove down an alley met a guy outside his garage and um, gave him 20 bucks and walked away with all his paper. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the issue is copyright. So, but I had to know where to get this stuff. And, and um, what was the larger uh, legal and cultural context? Um, first, we didn't hide it. We would put our sheets in a black book and took the black book to a job and played, you know. Then I left jazz and went into classics. And when I came back, the real books were all over. Nobody knew what a black book was. So I grew up in another era. But my point is, this is social world. But it's also a ranking. There's a stratification in these worlds. Who's good, who's best, who's worst? And of course, there'll be a lot of debate about that. You know, the history of jazz, you know, guys like Thelonious Monk and uh, John Coltrane originally started out at the bottom. Um, they were too avant-garde. So, and then they got, you know, dissed by it all by guys like Benny Goodman. And um, they were just, you know, they were old, old, old hat uh, at that point. This concludes the second episode we recorded with Professor Robert Stebbins. In the final episode with Professor Stebbins, we discuss optimal leisure lifestyles, amongst other things.